Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you along with us. Our topics today, we're going to actually uh, look at a number of things, um, a couple of things that are near and dear to my heart, like uh, some of the myths and misconceptions about the medieval era, probably better understood as the age of faith. Going to talk about that. Also, it's the 1st of June, which of course now it is the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, but I think I'm going to push um, commentary about that to next week and and talk about one of the uh, saints of May who uh, had a feast day since the last time I, I did one of these programs. I want to talk about the Venerable Bede, a name you've probably heard, but maybe you don't know uh, that much about him. And so interesting and fellow and uh, someone that we can turn to for intercession, I think, uh, particularly in these times. Also, we're going to look at seven biblical reasons not to worry Um reasons that come from the words of our Lord himself. So all that and more. And speaking of our Lord, uh, we're going to begin the program, as always, with this week's Sunday Gospel. We've taken uh, to going from the extraordinary uh, form lectionary to the ordinary, and so our Gospel today is taken from the ordinary form of the Mass for the seventh Sunday of Easter. Now, I know it's uh, entirely possible, uh, probably likely, that your bishop translated the celebration of the Feast of the Ascension to this Thursday, or from Thursday to this last Sunday. But the scheduled gospel to begin this week um, is part of the high priestly prayer of Jesus from St. John's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I pray not only on behalf of these, but also for those who through their word will come to believe in me. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, and thus the world may know that you have sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, allow those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they may behold my glory, which you have bestowed on me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. I have known you, and they have known that you have sent me. I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, to provide a little context, you should remember that uh, Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 16, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may uh, may attain eternal life. Then in this passage from uh, his high priestly prayer, if we back up to verse 18, just two verses before we began our reading, we see Jesus pray to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then that theme continues uh, throughout the prayer. It's interesting to note that Jesus did not ask God the Father to take the apostles or other believers out of the world, but instead to use them in the world. And because God loves the world and and sends Jesus into the world, 
we should not try and escape from the world, nor should we avoid all relationships with non-Catholics. And, and some select souls are called to, to set themselves apart and, and to, uh, to live a, a life of the work of continual prayer. And all of us, of course, need regular silence and solitude to commune with God and to build up that personal relationship uh, with him to which he calls us all. But he doesn't call us to shun the world but rather to be salt and light. And we are to do the work, you and I, that God has sent us to do. Uh, to put it another way, the Vatican II document on the laity, Apostolicum Exuositatum, says that we are to sanctify the secular order, lay people. Now, our Lord reveals the destiny of, of his, all of his followers in, in all times and places through this high priestly prayer. He prayed for all who would follow him, including you and me and the people we know. And what did he pray for? First, he prayed for unity, which, of course, is one of the four marks of the church and and is the object of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, as St. Paul says. He also prayed for our protection from the evil one who St. Peter tells us is, is on the prowl like a roaring lion uh, looking for someone to devour. And then since, you know, to sanctify the secular order means to make the world outside the four walls of, of the parish church more holy, and since you can't give what you don't have, he prayed for our holiness. Now, knowing that Jesus prayed for us in this way should help give us confidence as we work for his kingdom, to know that we are doing his will. Now, a word about, you know, assuming that we are <laughs> following the, the prescriptions of this prayer, uh, and, and therefore a word about unity. Jesus' great desire for his apostles was that they would be one, as he and the Father are one. This uh, was essential for them, that they live in the bonds of peace and unity which expressed their union with Christ. Our, our, our peace and unity with one another expresses our union with Christ. In other words, he wanted them unified as a witness to the world of the reality of God's love. And, and this is the mystery of the church in light of the sacrifice of Christ, that the church is anchored in the inexpressible love of the Son and the Father. And that love is a person, the Holy Spirit, this, this is the mystery of, of communion. And I'm not talking about the Blessed Sacrament, but, but the you know, uh, communion amongst Christians. Catholic Christians not only, well, of course, you know, <laughs> the Eucharist is, is an important part of that, right? Everything's connected. But uh, Catholic Christians, we testify to this communion, this, this uh, being anchored in, in the love of God, when not only when we live in communion, but but by the experience of this unity, we can discover more and more in the Spirit who Christ is and who the Father is. And the glory of Christ and the name of the Father will be revealed as the highest realities. This is what Jesus is on about. I have known you and they have known that you have sent me. I have made your name known to them and I will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus prayed for unity among believers based on their unity with him and with the Father. And so the way 
Christians can know unity among themselves is when they're living in union with God. As Jesus taught in, in John 15, just a couple of chapters earlier, he is the vine and we are the branches. And so each branch living in union with the vine is united to all the other branches that are doing the same. The question is, am I helping to unify the body of Christ, which is the church? You know, what can I do and what can you do to build up the body? And there are a few practical steps. Number one, pray. Pray for other Christians. And not, not only our, our fellow Catholics, but our separated brethren as well. And, and especially uh, for Catholics with whom you disagree. You know, pray for them. Number two, avoid gossip and scandal. Number three, be humble and do your best to build others up. And number four, give of your time, talent, and treasure. Now, <clears throat> certainly in your parish community, if that's, if that's you know, uh, possible for you, also through the support of um, other Catholic apostolates and other, other apostolic work. Certainly, uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, I, I couldn't be addressing you with these comments right now if it weren't for the support that we get from our donors, not, not only uh, the financial support, but their spiritual support as well. It, it's crucial to our, to our very existence. Um, so that, that's, you know, to, to give of your time, talent, and treasure. And then finally, to exalt Christ in all things and refuse to get sidetracked, you know, arguing over divisive matters, most especially gossip and scandal. This is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a dead end. And, and I think that's worth taking a moment to reflect on, and we'll probably do uh, more of that on the other side of the break. But, but to think about this, and it's difficult in these times, especially when, when people are so polarized, that we should always give the benefit of the doubt. St. Thomas Aquinas uh, had this to say about it in the Summa Theologica. He said, unless we have evident indications of a person's wickedness, we ought to deem him good by interpreting for the best whatever is doubtful about him. Now I know what you're thinking, but listen. He who interprets doubtful matters for the best may happen to be deceived more often than not. Yet it is better to err frequently through thinking well of a wicked man, than to err less frequently through having an evil opinion of a good man. Because the latter can cause injury, uh, in the latter case an injury is inflicted, but not in the former. So in other words, if you choose to put the best spin on things, and to think the best of someone, even, even if they don't appear to deserve it, at least you haven't done anyone any harm. But if you impute evil to someone unjustly, you've committed a sin against the cardinal virtue of justice by not giving to that person uh, what is their due, uh, you know, which is respect and obedience if we're talking about someone who's your superior, and fraternal charity uh, no matter what your relationship. And it seems to me as a general principle, it is better to think and act like a pious Catholic you know, along with St. Thomas Aquinas, than like an internet troll. Okay, more about this when we return. Also, seven biblical reasons not to worry, and much more on No Nonsense Catholic, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And we were talking before the break about giving people the benefit of the doubt, and that includes our fellow Catholics, including our fellow Catholics in the hierarchy. Uh, I quoted Thomas Aquinas from the Summa saying, unless we have evident indications of a person's wickedness, we ought to deem him good by interpreting for the best whatever is doubtful about him. And he says, yeah, it's, uh, there's a good chance that you're, that you're going to be deceived more often than not, yet it's better to err on the side of giving the person the benefit of the doubt uh, rather than, you know, uh, and be wrong rather than having an evil opinion of good man and be wrong because there's an injury in that case. You know, and I have to admit, I, I you know, I often think that I'm, the, <laughs> I often think the worst. I'll just say it. I often think the worst, and I'm rarely disappointed. And, and I have even said, you can ask my wife, I've said, you know, I'm tired of being right all the time. Oh, poor me, right? <laughs> but the fact is, I don't always really know that I'm right. And even if I am proven right, it's of no real advantage to me. I mean, in fact, according to the angelic doctor, it would be better for me if I was content more often to be wrong, thinking well about the wicked, than to take the chance of being wrong, uh, thinking ill about the good. In the Imitation of Christ, uh, Thomas Akempis says, always think kindly of others while holding yourself is nothing. This is not, uh, this is a very medieval mentality. This is not the way that the self-help books tell you to proceed. But always think kindly of others while holding yourself is nothing. This is true wisdom and leads to perfection. If you see another commit a grievous sin or whose faults are flagrant, and isn't this the, the very excuse that we use to, to justify our, our critical comments and, and our condemnations and, and calumnies, if you see another committed grievous sin or whose faults are flagrant, do not regard yourself as better, for you do not know what you would do if similarly, similarly tempted. Always keep in mind that all are frail, but none so frail as yourself. Watch over yourself and take care not to judge the actions of other people. We gain nothing by criticizing others, but are often mistaken and thereby offend God. But to judge yourself and your own actions is always profitable. And that's no nonsense. Okay. <clears throat> I mentioned it as of today, it is the 1st of June. June is the month of the Sacred Heart. But I feel that I've been remiss, uh, particularly uh, about my treatment of some of the great medieval saints of May. Uh, like St. Joan of Arc, for example, whom I'm sure you already know but also a great English saint. His uh, feast day was on the 25th uh, in the new calendar, the 27th in the old. And um, his name is the Venerable Bede. I'm sure you've heard of him, but maybe you don't know so much about him. He lived from the year 672 to the year 735, so he's lived to be 63 years old. And he's almost always referred to as the Venerable Bede, but he is, in fact, a canonized saint as well as a doctor of the church. So, officially, he is St. Bede the Venerable, Doctor Anglorum, which means the English doctor, because he is, in fact, the only English Catholic with that distinction. And before you send me cards and letters, St. Anselm of Canterbury uh, was originally, he's a doctor of the church, but he was originally from Italy. Okay. 
So St. Bede wrote uh, extensively during his time as a, uh, a monk and a priest. He wrote scientific and historical and theological works, ranging from works of music to commentaries on the Holy Scripture. He was made doctor of the church in 1899 by Pope Leo XIII uh, and was made a, a doctor for his theological writings, but his, he's best known for his great historical work, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People, where, wherein he traces English history back to the, the Roman invasion, the Roman occupation of, of 55 BC. And then uh, he recounts St. Augustine of Canterbury's uh, uh, mission to England in 597, <clears throat> and the uh, and how Engl- uh, Christianity was brought to the Anglo-Saxon people. And, you know, St. Augustine of Canterbury, by the way, is another medieval saint of the month of May, uh, and another one who's probably better known than Bede. And one of the lasting contributions that St. Bede made to history is of his use of the distinction of A.D., Anno Domini, or the year of our Lord. It was, you know, uh, in the hundred years before Bede's time, <clears throat> that that term was first introduced uh, by some Catholic scholars who did not you know, think it was uh, meet to reckon the year from the foundation of the city of Rome. I mean, that's throughout the Roman Empire. That's, you know, the year was the year uh, from the foundation. And so they thought it would be better as Christians to reckon the year from the birth of Christ. Hence, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Okay. Now, Bede, of course, was recounting events that took place in England um, that happened before the nativity of our Lord, even centuries before in some cases, right? So um, uh, at least uh, half a century before in the case of the Roman occupation. So he needed a way to distinguish those years from the years of our Lord, the A.D., and he's the one that came up with B.C., before Christ. And the Venerable Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People is the reason that we use a Latin abbreviation, A.D., Anno Domini, for the time after the birth of Christ, and an English abbreviation, B.C., for the years before Christ. And in case you ever wondered, now you know. Now, something that I've often thought about, but I've never seen any commentary on, is the fact that the name Bede is actually a common noun, or was in Old English. Um, and, and it was a common noun and a verb. So as a common noun, the word bead means prayer. And yes, and by the way, that's why we call rosary beads beads, because, you know, it actually, that the, the original meaning of the word bead was prayer. And, and as a verb, it means to pray. And, and I'm not sure if bead was uh, St. Bede the Venerable's given name, or if it's the name he took uh, when he entered religious life. But it seems like uh, Bede's parents had an inkling of, of his promise, because they entrusted him as a young boy to the abbot of Wearmouth, St. Benedict Biscop. And he was raised in, in Wearmouth until um, there was a plague there, and he went to the twin monasteries, twin abbeys of Saints Peter and Paul. And he spent most of his life in the monastery, yet he did travel to several other abbeys and monasteries across the British Isles, uh, including visits to the Archbishop of York and to the King of Northumbria. And, and like most medieval writers, Bede's works often seem surprisingly contemporary. So consider this, uh, pardon me, consider this from a prayer composed by St. Bede. Lord God Almighty, open wide the door of my heart and illumine it with the grace of the Holy Spirit, 
that I may seek what is pleasing to your will. Guide my thoughts and my heart, and lead my life in the way of your commandments, that I may always seek to fulfill them, and that I may grasp the eternal joys of the heavenly life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I can say this, this, it could have been, uh, you know, a contemporary pope or bishop that, that uh, composed this prayer. It could certainly be part of the contemporary liturgy, but it actually goes back to the Middle Ages. And just that, you know, it shows us the continuity of our faith, and it's just the kind of prayer you might expect from a saint whose name actually means prayer. Uh, Bede was also a skilled, skilled linguist. Try and say that three times fast. A skilled linguist and a translator. And, and his monastery actually had an impressive library, some 700 volumes. And, and he made old English translations of, like, the fathers from the Latin and Greek, which uh, had, um, you know, made it much more accessible to his fellow Anglo-Saxons and contributed significantly to the development of English Christianity. And, and for all of this, Bede was described by his contemporaries as, quote, the most observant and the happiest of all monks. A priest, a religious, an historian, a theologian, a translator, and a teacher, Bede was never overwhelmed by this really very busy life that he led, but he carried within him a deep peace, a peace that other people could see, the peace that the world cannot give. And the, the young monk who attended him at his death said that Bede's last request was for him to turn his head so that he could see the little altar that was in his cell where he would say Mass. And, and when he turned his face to the altar, he said he sang as joyfully as ever, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. And then he died. As the patron of English writers and scholars and historians, Bede has a special place in my heart because of, of, of my occupation and my heritage. But because of his joy and, and the gentle wisdom of his works, I think he's a, a wonderful saint for any of, us, any of us to turn to in the midst of these rather troubling and confusing times. So that's your official introduction to St. Bede, the Venerable Dr. Anglorum. O God, by the learning of Blessed Bede, your confessor and doctor, you glorified your church. Grant that your servants may ever be enlightened by his wisdom and helped by his merits. Amen. Okay, I wanted to, to take one second here and mention, because I've been kind of remiss uh, in this area as well, uh, talking about some of the stuff that's coming up here and what the stuff we're doing at, uh, at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We're going to talk in just a minute about seven biblical reasons for you to stop worrying. But, uh, but before that, I just wanted to let you know that on the 18th of this month, 18th of June, 2022, is the date of the Catholic Resource Center slash Virgin Most Powerful Annual Men's Conference, which is going to uh, take place here at the historic Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina, California. And uh, Jesse Romero will be there, and he's going to be giving three talks. He's going to talk about the role of men based on God's Word, the role of women based on God's Word, and a talk title that I found find really intriguing, uh, Patriarchy Comes from God, Anarchy Comes from Satan. Uh, that, that's a topic for a men's conference right there. Uh, also, Jesse's co-host, Terry Barber, and our fearless leader, he'll be there also giving a talk, as will Jesse's partner from Jesus 911, Ruben Nava, will be there giving a talk as well. I expect that confessions will be made available, if possible. That's our 
our usual uh, modus operandi at the men's conference. Also, we're going to have Eucharistic Adoration and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So that's the Catholic Resource Center, <clears throat> pardon me, Virgin Most Powerful Radio Annual Men's Conference 2022 uh, at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina, California, this June the 18th, starting at 8 a.m. Uh, and goes till 5 p.m. when we'll close with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Registration is open now. Go to vmpr.org. It's right there on the homepage, and you can click on the on the uh, uh, little picture there and register for the conference. And I really encourage you to do that because seating is limited. The men's conference always I'll put an underline, always sells out. So you're going to want to register. If you're going to go, want to register now. $35 per person, $50 for a couple. Uh, and you can register right now on the Virgin Most Powerful website, vmpr.org. Okay, when we come back, seven biblical reasons for you, and yeah, I'm talking to you, to stop worrying. And then we're also going to look at some myths and misconceptions about the age of faith, all that when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to uh, No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm a little out of breath here. It's a problem when you get old and asthmatic and and, uh, have to... uh, run and do something in the two minutes of commercial time that you have available. So I apologize for being breathy. But uh, I want to turn to our next topic. I've been talking about it, teasing it through the show, seven biblical reasons not to worry. Everybody knows that worry is bad for you. And, and we've talked about it uh, any number of times on the program, how undue anxiety can, can damage your health, it can affect your, your productivity and the way you treat others in a negative way. It can, uh, it can hamper your ability even to trust in God, to uh, worry excessive. And if, does any of that sound familiar to you? And maybe if not you, then maybe somebody you know. You know and the, the fact is that, that this has always been the case. And because of the many bad effects of worry and anxiety, Jesus tells us specifically not to worry, uh, especially about those common needs that fall under the providence of God. Now, there is such a thing, of course, as concern. I mean, genuine concern, uh, you know, is, is different from worry or anxiety. Uh, concern, um, you know, uh, is, is something that inspires you to take action, whereas worry and anxiety can immobilize you. And that's, and that's as different as night and day. And in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7 recounts the, uh, the famous Sermon on the Mount, which includes, among other things, the, the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes, teaching on marriage and divorce. You know, there's, there's just a lot um, that's included there. And including uh, in, in chapter 6, the seven biblical reasons not to worry. So we're just going to go through them kind of one at a time and, and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, take a look at what our good Lord said. So number one, the same God who created your immortal soul can be trusted with the details of your mortal life. Matthew 6, 25, Jesus says, Therefore heed my words. Do not be concerned about your life and what you will have to eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Surely life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Number two, worrying about your future 
can hamper your efforts for today. Matthew 6.26 says, Gaze upon the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap or store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of far greater value than they? Number three, worrying can be more harmful than helpful. And that's the, the very next verse, Matthew 6.27. Can any of you, through worrying, add a single moment to your span of life? Right? What does worrying accomplish? And the answer is nothing. Uh, number four, God is provident. He does not ignore those who depend on him. And so a little longer passage, Matthew 6, 28 through 30. And why are you concerned about what you are to wear? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither labor nor spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his royal splendor was clothed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass in the field, which grow today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not all the more clothe you, O you of little faith? Number five, worrying betrays a lack of faith in and understanding of God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 31 and 32, Therefore, stop being anxious about such things. That has the ring of command in it, doesn't it? It doesn't think, think about stopping, or it might be good if you were to stop, or maybe if somebody else stopped, that no, he says, Therefore, stop being anxious about such things. Do not say, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? These are, th- um, these are things that are of concern to the Gentiles. Your Heavenly Father is fully aware of all your needs. Number six, worrying keeps us from real challenges that God wants us to pursue. Rather, and this is, this is the key right here, if you're looking for the key verse in all this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It is, it's just bad for you to be anxious, and especially about all of our temporal needs. The kingdom of God, I mean, we've talked about it, and we'll talk about it uh, more in just a minute. But this is key, that we need to have our eyes fixed on Christ and our, have our hearts fixed on the kingdom and not be so concerned about our material needs. And then number seven, living one day at a time keeps us from being consumed with worry. It was Jesus Christ who said in Matthew 6, 34, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. So one day at a time. Now, this is a justly famous passage of Scripture. All seven of these um, points are in Matthew six twenty five through 34. And it's justly famous because it speaks directly to God's will for us. You note that Jesus is listing real human needs. You can't go without eat and drink and, and, and uh, you know, clothing. But he warns us against making those very real needs the object of anxiety by which we would risk becoming enslaved by them. We can become enslaved by our material needs by, because of you know, constantly being anxious about it. Slavery to anxiety is a real danger. It was a danger in the first century, 
and it's a danger in the 21st century. Your health, your productivity, your relationships with your friends and family, and most especially your relationship with God, all these things can be damaged and distorted by worry. The, the, the remedy for such an attitude, which is God's will for you, is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What does it mean to make the kingdom of God your primary concern? It means to put God first in your life. Uh, the Imitation of Christ says that um, to fill your thoughts with his will, to take his character for your pattern, to serve and obey him in everything, after all, what is really important to you? Right? Your relationships, your, your stuff, your, your goals, your desires, all these things are constantly competing for priority. And any of them can quite quickly and, and seemingly without warning bump Christ and bump God out of the first place in your life unless you actively choose to give him first place in every area of your life. Uh, we talked last week about what it means to be in the kingdom of God, that it goes beyond baptism, that, that because it's, it's possible to be in the church and not be in the kingdom. Because being in the kingdom of God means to have, he said, Jesus himself said, the kingdom of God is, is within you. The kingdom of God is among you. It's in your midst. It's about being in the state of grace, to have the spirit of God dwelling within you. To be in the kingdom means to be holy. And so to seek his righteousness is to continue to grow in holiness, which in turn gives you greater confidence in God's providence, which in turn helps you to worry less. Now, this doesn't mean falling into fatalism, okay? Okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. No, planning for tomorrow is, is time well spent. Worrying about tomorrow is time wasted. And admittedly, it's sometimes difficult to tell the difference. But careful planning, uh, that it, careful planning means thinking ahead and trusting in God's providence. And, and if it's done well, planning can help to alleviate your anxiety. You know, worriers, on, on the other hand, are, are consumed by fear, and they find it more and more difficult to trust in God's providence. And, and it is all too possible to let your plans interfere with your relationship to, uh, with God. Remember that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the message here is do not let worries about tomorrow affect your relationship with God today. In fact, there's a, uh, there's a popular prayer, and, and I do not know its origin, and I, I mostly see it on uh, you know, wall plaques and coffee cups, <laughs> but I think it applies here. And that prayer is, <clears throat> pardon me, Lord, help me to remember that nothing is going to happen to me today that you and I together can't handle. And that is no nonsense. Okay, I uh, mentioned at the top of the show that I wanted to talk today a little bit about some myths and misconceptions regarding the age of faith, which is to say what they call the Middle Ages, okay? Um, the Middle Ages, so often portrayed as a time of darkness and ignorance and barbarity and, and, and violence, uh, it, you know, I think nine out of ten medieval movies begin with a bunch of knights coming in and burning a village, <laughs> you know, like this was a, like this was an, an everyday occurrence in the Middle Ages. 
and there are, but there are a lot of things that people assume are true that actually come, oh, from various sources, including the, the, the black legend, which we began in England um, during the, the time of the Spanish Inquisition, during the time of the Reformation, that, uh, you know, uh, there were a number of lies and calumnies uh, spread about the Catholic Church that just kind of became enshrined in, in the thinking or, you know, the belief of the Anglophone world, okay? So uh, I just want to go through a few of them. I'm um, going to start with um, kind of number 10 on my list. And, and I took a, uh, a, uh, this list from an article, a website article, uh, Listverse is a, is a website. I don't know that I can recommend it, although this article was good. And naturally, I'm going to be supplementing it with my own knowledge of the Middle Ages. But um, it was 10 con- misconceptions about medieval people. And one of them is that medieval people only drank alcohol. That, uh, you know, you may have heard this, that they never drank water because the water was so, you know, polluted or was so dirty. You know, it's like you're going to get Montezuma's revenge. So, so everybody, you know, uh, to avoid bacteria and disease, they had to drink uh, only beer and wine. Uh, and it, it, it should be fairly obvious that this wasn't true. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, but it keeps, you know, it's repeated often enough and you see it on the internet, even in documentaries, even though so much evidence to the contrary is, uh, you know, to be scattered all across the medieval world. Uh, the fact that people built villages next to running water and dug wells uh, and also the writing of medieval tales and saints about drinking water as, as opposed to drinking water. Just one thing on a whole list and we're going to continue with that when we come back. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No Nonsense Catholics. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about some misconceptions about the age of faith, about the Middle Ages. And, and we started with the, uh, with the misconception that uh, uh, medieval people uh, only drank alcohol which is uh, uh, not at all true. And uh, one of the things that I was uh, relating about this is that, uh, you know, I think the idea comes from the the notion that um, water was so polluted, you know, in in their day that people put their sewage in the water and people, you know, there was so much bacteria and and people, hygiene was, you know, just uh, held in such low esteem that it was dangerous to drink water, which is nonsense. And, uh, you know, in fact, by the year 1236, London had a whole system of pipes. The whole, the whole town was piped, and they had fountains um, where water was available free, right? And because of that, though, I mean, because water comes from the well or the stream or, or from the fountain for free if you live in a big town, uh, it became associated with the poor as a drink for the poor. Um, and also, in an age, people burned a lot of calories in those days, Okay. Uh, you know, to, to live in the medieval world meant, uh, for most people, uh, a life of backbreaking labor. In fact, just the, the common housewife, if you, didn't, if you didn't live in a, in a town or a village that had a, a mill to grind flour, or if you couldn't afford you know, to go to the mill um, and give up, a, you know, I mean, they, they bartered back in those days, but you'd have to give up a portion of your grain for the miller to, to grind flour for you. And this was, and this was a, something that had to happen every single day. And so in many households, they would have their own, like a personal-sized millstone uh, that was called a quern. 
where they could, you know, put in the grain and make flour. And, but depending upon the size of your family, that could take anywhere from one or two hours just to, to make the flour. And that was, and it was every single day. And so it became known as the daily grind. Okay. A lot of these things, you know, these terms that we use today go back to the middle ages. And so people did need something that was portable and supplied some calories. It was a hearty, uh, um, beverage. And so beer and ale came to the rescue. In fact, beer was known even into pilgrim times as liquid bread because, you know, it's, it's, and, and beer in those days tended to be thicker, thicker and heavier and higher in calories. Most people made their own, uh, beer and it was a natural choice for, uh, like a, a, a serf, you know, the common man who's a farmer, he's going to be out in the fields all day. He can just take, he can take the beer with him and drink it throughout the day. Okay. And, and now I do think that there may be, um, a little grain of truth in the idea about medieval people drinking alcohol rather than water because of St. Arnold of Soissons. St. Arnold, uh, good name, is the um, patron saint of beer and the patron saint of brewers because um, <clears throat> Arnold of Soissons was, was the bishop there at, at a time where there was a plague and the plague was being spread via bacteria in the water. And so he decreed that the people of Soissons should drink beer instead of water for the duration of the plague, and they were saved from the ravages of the plague. So that may be kind of where the idea started. But medieval people, especially religious, drank uh, plenty of water. Uh, this is also connected, I think, with the um, another myth, which is that medieval people rarely bathed. You know, if, if you get your um, ideas about the Middle Ages from watching Game of Thrones and other, you know, and TV programs and whatnot, you know, um, everybody is always depicted as, uh, you know, kind of filthy, <laughs> right? People, uh, it's like the Monty Python. You got, people have mud all over them. Um, and, you know, there's this mythology of the yearly bath that medieval people maybe bathed only once or twice a year. Now, it is certainly true that the average uh, peasant household didn't include a bath. They didn't have, a, couldn't afford a, a bathroom. Uh, but you know, one of my favorite places here in Southern California, up in the Mojave Desert, is uh, uh, Calico. It's a ghost town. It was a, a silver mining community that was founded back in 1881. And if you go and you look at the houses, you know they don't have bathrooms either. It wasn't common, you know, until later on for people to have a bath in their home. So what did they do? They did the same thing that people did in the Middle Ages. You spend a, a hard day in the mines or whatever, and you go to the, rather than carrying water from the nearest source of water and filling your bathtub, you just get in the water at its source and bathe there. Or there's, um, you know, the barbershop. And uh, uh, there was a, a Chinese laundry that had a bathtub, and it's still there, and they still have the sign, 10 cents. To, to take a bath in hot water, right? As opposed to, to uh, uh, you know, just going to, to the reservoir or whatever and getting in the cold water. They would, they would heat the water for you. Same water they used to wash the clothes with. And they had soap, you know, and the local hotel. So, uh, and it's the same thing in the Middle Ages. People would go down to the, to the river or the spring and wash themselves there. Or if you lived in town, um, you could go to the bathhouse. They also had, uh, like in London... Not only did they have bathhouses, but they had public toilets as well. And that's something else that you know, maybe we'll talk about here if, we, if I don't go on too long. The point is that, you know, levels of hygiene um, varied from person to person, just as they still do today. 
but the average medieval person bathed regularly and would have washed their hands and face at least every day upon rising and also and before eating. Uh, people cleaned their teeth. They used uh, little um, squares of wool to polish their teeth with. They also used kind of a toothpick made from willow, which is a natural analgesic, right? Willow bark is where we get, uh, we synthesize aspirin. So, you know, and you can imagine with people, uh, that, you know, the dentistry not being what it is today. That's one of those things. I'm not nostalgic about the Middle Ages, okay? If I go into a Gothic cathedral, I'm nostalgic about medieval architecture, never nostalgic about medieval dentistry. But the point is that people did what they could to to keep their uh, teeth in, in good order. In fact, at, at a medieval feast, uh, if you were you know, lucky enough to, to uh, attend a dinner in, in a noble household, there would be, you know, the food is served in courses and, and all like you would expect. But after that, we have, um, you know, after the dinner proper, and first, and of course, everyone would have washed their hands before they had dinner, and they would have said grace before and after. But after the main meal, they would serve dessert, and dessert would usually be some kind of uh, um, alcoholic drink, a liqueur, or or a, a spiced wine, and then they would have desserts, and the desserts weren't um, so sweet the way we are. I mean, sugar wasn't all that uh, uh, common. So they would have desserts that were made with uh, clove and cinnamon and and ginger. And one of the reasons that those spices were popular for this, this after-dinner treat was because it promoted good breath for that after-dinner conversation, okay? It's like it was, it was the, the medieval uh, equivalent of the breath mint. So, you know, clearly these, these ideas are not so modern uh, as we think. And um, I may be time for one or two more. Um, you get the idea. Every, every medieval movie, especially if it has a comedic angle, uh, we'll, we'll see uh, sewage being thrown into the street, Okay. That, you know, I mean, there may have been times in, more recently in history where that kind of thing was, was uh, common, but that's not what you did with your sewage in the Middle Ages. You didn't empty your chamber pot out the window back in those days because it was definitely not common. And to begin with, you know, people who lived in rural areas, which was, you know, 90% of everybody, they didn't have any need to do that. You, you live out in the country, so you'd take the chamber pot down to the compost heap, right? And, and put it there with, uh, with the, uh, your kitchen waste and all the rest of it to, to turn into fertilizer. Um, maybe you would go to the river, you know, downstream. And, and certainly that happened in towns as well, that people could go outside of the, the, the town wall, go to the, the local river and, and toss their, their waste there, um, you know, below where you, people would go for, to, uh, you know, to, to get water drinking water and so forth. But, you know, there's, there's almost no waste-related uh, issues from medieval documents in rural areas, but in the towns, different story. Because it was much more difficult to dispose of waste in towns. So what do you do? You know, uh, if you had a toilet, and people did have toilets, but they didn't flush, right? What would you do with your waste? Where would you go? Where would you take it? You know, uh, where could you dump waste in your own hometown without upsetting somebody? You know, and the medievals struggled with that too. And that's why there were strict laws governing the removal of waste. Everybody had, was responsible for keeping the, the street in front of their own home or business clean. And if there was, you know, they had people who were actually called muckrakers, right, <laughs> who would go and, you know, clean out the, the gutters. And they were on the lookout 
for waste. And, and there were heavy fines uh, involved with that sort of thing. And, and if nobody would come clean, they'd find everybody on the whole street. So people were motivated to police themselves. You know, there, there's one medieval chronicle that talks about a guy who was almost beaten to death by his neighbors because he threw fish skins into the street. Okay, much less his chamber pot. And, and there were actually a number of options for getting rid of waste, you know, in medieval London. Like I said, they had public toilets. And, and they also had, uh, people had toilets in, in their homes that went through pipes into a big cesspit. And then the cesspits were cleaned out, as they would have to be, uh, rather regularly, by people that were called gong farmers. I have no idea what the etymology of that word is or what it means, what a gong farmer is precisely, or where that word comes from. But, you know, what they did was muck out the the cesspits. And the other thing that I know about the gong farmers is that, you know, clearly that's not a, a, uh, you know, it's a dirty job, but they got paid as much in a day as the typical townsman who was a, you know, worked in a shop or whatever, got paid in a week. It was an important job because it's important to take care of that stuff. And it wasn't different in the Middle Ages. And I, <clears throat> why, why go through all this? Why, why bother to talk about this? Well, largely it's because of these, these various, um, well, it's an injustice for one thing because there was actually more genuine human progress, both socially and in many ways technologically, during the Middle Ages, and specifically the Middle Ages in Christendom, than at any other time in human history. Candid historians still refer to the the 13th century, the 1200s, as the greatest century, because so many things uh, are attributable to that society at that time, things that, that are still important today, things that only happened because of the Catholic Church, because of the teachings of Jesus Christ. Before the medieval period, there were doctors, but there were no hospitals. There were, there were philosophers, but there were no universities. There were philanthropists, but there were no charities. All of that comes from what I call the medieval mentality, which is simply uh, people trying to actualize in their own lives and in their own society the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so many of the problems we have today in the Western world come from the fact that we've simply forgotten that simple truth. And, uh, and that is why I pray for the restoration of Christendom. And that's no nonsense. All right, thank you so very much for being with us. Looking forward to doing it all again next week. Don't forget, if you have a, a, a friend who is a priest or you have a priest in your life or seminarians, Make sure that you uh, put them in touch with the called and chosen priest retreat from Bishop Sheen. You can get it right on vmpure.org or on the smartphone app, absolutely free. Hey, till next time, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.